It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello and welcome to Locked On Vikings. I am your host, I am your pal, and I'm the kid you copied off in math class. My name is Luke Braun. You can find me at Luke Braun NFL on Twitter. You can follow the show on Twitter at Locked On Vikings. And we have a lot to talk about today, so let's jump right into it. So the conversation that kind of surrounded all day was uh, about Mike Zimmer. So obviously the week's been defined by John Filippo's firing and everything that kind of came after that. And as that was going on, there was a tweet from Kevin Seifert, an ESPN insider, who uh, tweeted about Mike Zimmer's role in all this. And he says, two OCs depart Minnesota midseason in the past three years, North Turner in 2016, Neither Norv nor DiFilippo are perfect, but it's important to view today's news in full context. Working for Mike Zimmer isn't easy. Now, to me, this reads like he's speculating and not reporting, and I think sometimes, anytime somebody has a blue check by their name and then they tweet something, it's hard for people to differentiate between if this is just this guy's opinion or guess, or if he's saying, hey, I have a source who is telling me, yeah, all these guys got frustrated under, under Mike Zimmer and he's not an easy guy to work for or whatever. Um, I'll link that tweet in the show notes too, just so you guys can follow along. But that kind of sparked this, like, community-wide discussion about, hey, is all of this Mike Zimmer's fault? You know, I mean, he's been the head coach for five years. The offense has not ever really been very good. He's on the fourth offensive coordinator now, and there's no guarantee this guy's going to work out. Uh, at some point, you know, you have to look at the head coach and, oh, is he ultimately responsible for the performance of half of the team he's the head coach for, even though he was only brought in to be a defensive guy? And that argument makes sense, and I wanted to lay that out, like, cleanly and make it, you know, represent it as best as I could so that you, the listener, can draw your own opinion about it before I come in and start interjecting mine. Um, but I think it's difficult to say that, especially because, as far as we know, Mike Zimmer has been fairly hands-off with the offense, and I think the year that he talked the most about being involved with the offense was 2017 with Pat Shermer, and Pat Shermer ended up getting a head coaching job off of the performance of that offense. Now, that's all, again, speculation. We don't know how involved he is. We don't know how often he, you know, sticks his nose into the offense and messes with the OC's business and then makes that guy frustrated. And I get it. And I get it. It's really scary to have a head coach that might be, like, pushing people out the door all the time. You don't want coaching turnover. But I think it it makes sense to look at the rest of the roster as well, uh, or the rest of the position coaches, that is, as well. You know, you have uh, Jerry Gray has been a fixture in the organization for a long time, and, and he is has done an excellent job. He can be partially credited, at least, with developing Xavier Rhodes and with Trey Waynes' growth over all this time. And, and Mike Hughes was looking really promising, and now he's got this Holton Hill thing, you know, reflecting really well on him. And I understand that, like, Mike Zimmer also got involved with that and is very hands-on with his defensive backs, but I think Jerry Gray has to, you know, get some credit, right? He's the one working with them every single day and, and focusing on them. Um, and even if it is only a Mike Zimmer thing, that is a really good reason to, you know, be okay with his curmudgeon attitude and, and his kind of weird press conferences sometimes. And Andre Patterson, too. He's a guy that eventually is going to start getting defensive coordinator buzz because of all of this, the development that he's been able to achieve on the defensive line with, you know, getting so much out of Everson Griffin and Daniel Hunter is his kind of magnum opus and so on and so forth. And even on the offensive side of the ball, uh, you know, we got rid of Jeff Davidson, who is proving to be one of the worst offensive line coaches in the league. There's actually a great article about 
uh, offensive line coaching by Justice Mosqueda, and I will link that in the show notes. Uh, but it does have Jeff Davidson at the very, very bottom. And then they brought in Tony Sperano, and things seem to be doing very well there. Unfortunately, he passed away. And you have a guy like Kevin Stefanski, who's been able to stay with his or- this organization throughout Mike Zimmer's entire tenure, and cho- is is here from before Mike Zimmer's tenure. And I know that he tried to go to uh, New York, but that was for ostensibly a promotion. And the Vikings were able to block it because it doesn't technically count as a promotion. But I think most position coaches in the league would leave any situation if it meant a promote if it meant a coordinating job that is the next step toward head coaching it's the next step in someone's career so it would be really hard for anybody to convince me that Kevin Stefanski trying to leave for New York was him trying to leave because he hates Mike Zimmer I I think uh, I think Kevin Seifert was speculating on twitter.com which is something that he is allowed to do not everything he says has to be reporting and I think people just went and ran with it. Um, it. It's a good thing to look into. I don't think there's a problem there. So as it is the Thursday show, I also kind of want to take a quick look around the league. I want to look at some of the biggest things that are happening in the league. Uh, the playoff picture is really interesting. Maybe we'll talk about that a little bit next week. But what I really want to dive into is the news that came out today. Uh, John Harbaugh went on the podium and he said that Lamar Jackson is going to be the starting quarterback of the Ravens, even though Joe Flacco is fully healthy. And for me, now, if you're somebody who's followed me for a while, you will know how I feel about this. Uh, But I was a Joe Flacco hater for the longest time. When I first started writing a couple years ago, uh, Joe Flacco was kind of the antithesis of everything I believed you should do at the quarterback position. He kind of got a, a contract after a Super Bowl that rewarded him for good performance. And then he got another contract that rewarded him for good performance in in 2014 down the stretch, and he, he had some really good playoff performance there. But it was always uh, paying the quarterback for what he did and not what you think he's going to do, which, in my opinion, is, is a mistake, right? What he did is something you already have. You already got that value. You have to pay him for what you think he's going to do, and there were signs and signals there that kind of led, should have led the Ravens to believe that he would fall apart. Now, he got hurt in 2015, and then everything, and then he kind of never came back the same. But eventually, you know, three years after that, you can't blame the ACL injury. He was playing incredibly poorly. He was a little better this year, but he was still like an incredibly poor quarterback for the last two or three years, stuck with the Ravens on this completely imprisoning contract And now they have to go to Lamar Jackson, who they drafted in the first round. And I think even if you have your guy who's been your guy for 10 years, drafting a quarterback in the first round, in my opinion, is never a bad idea because you can always try to recoup that value via trade. Uh, And he is a quarterback that is unconventional. He is an okay passer. I I don't think, I think he might be a little bit underrated, uh, but he is at least a functional passer with, with his arm. Uh, But he's just this crazy runner, right? So the Ravens have completely adapted their offense. They had a drive where uh, on Sunday where they went eight plays down the field, 75 yards, and all eight plays were runs between QB runs and and classic running back runs. Uh, And they managed to score a touchdown on that drive. And I think that that was just such awesome offensive design to take your players and use their talents, use their strengths, and really showcase what they do well rather than pigeonholing them and trying to teach them something that they don't do well. I think it was a really great moment for the Ravens as a franchise. And I also think that 
QB runs, from a value perspective, I mean, QB runs average like five or six, maybe even seven yards a pop. And some of that scrambling, which you can't really plan, but design quarterback runs are really, really excellent. That's coming from a guy that thinks that the running game in general is way less valuable than the passing game. I just think quarterback runs right now, the way defenses play, the way they align, the way those quarterback runs are designed, they are good plays very often. And, and, Building an offense around them is something that I think is a good idea and something that's sustainable for the future. So I just wanted to touch on some of that around the league stuff. Uh, we are going to now preview the Miami game. We're going to go a little deeper into the stuff we talked about yesterday with uh, Travis Wingfield. Again, go check out that episode, and then we're going to get into some of your bold predictions. So stay tuned, uh, and I will see you in a second. Hi, this is David Locke, the CEO of the Lockdown Podcast Network. In this crazy, unprecedented, and unnerving time, I know we're all living our lives a little differently. I thought we had some of our sponsors over the time that might be able to help you out. So we've reached out to them to get you specific offers. Postmates is giving our listeners $100 of free delivery credit for their first seven days. Start your free deliveries, download the Postmates app, and use the promo code LOCKEDONNBA. Anxiety, stress, need something to calm yourself down? The Calm app is available for you. 40% off to our listeners at calm.com slash locked on NBA. Stuck at home, want fitness? Echelon Fit has been a sponsor of ours. And you can go to echelonfit.com slash L-O-N-B-A. And if you're looking to add some new knowledge and get a little smarter in your free time, Masterclass, or at least your time at home, masterclass.com slash P-E-R is offering 15% off. If you missed any of those, go to LockdownPodcast.com slash offers. That's LockdownPodcast.com slash offers. Thank you very much for tuning in to Lockdown Podcast Network. We hope to be here for you to give you a relief and uh, respite from all the other news. And thanks very much. Be safe and practice your social distancing. And we are back. So let's talk about the Miami Dolphins. Uh, now, we talked a little bit about uh, Kenyon Drake with Travis yesterday, uh, but I wanted to go a little bit deeper into him because I actually did look into his film a little bit, and I did a little bit of work on Twitter, a, a little bit of film work on Twitter. I can link you guys that so you can follow along. But basically, I just kept finding, I, I looked at just the, the Kenyon Drake like long breakaway touchdowns, and I kept finding a pattern of him in the open field. And this is going to be really, really crucial to not let him break loose and the Dolphins are going to try to, to put him in space, kind of similarly to how the Vikings use Dalvin Cook. They're going to try to get him into space because he's incredible at making people miss. And especially when he's in a breakaway down the field and he's coming up on a safety or something, and he's got 20 yards to work with, he's amazing at using that 20 yards to kind of draw the safety out of position or draw the safety into a place where he can then make a move and make a cut and get around him. We saw this very famously in the Miami Miracle that just happened uh, against Rob Gronkowski, obviously not a world-beating defender, but you could still see the technique work and work really, really, really dramatically because Gronk is not a safety. Uh, you saw him, once he kind of took the edge and, and got the corner, you could see him start to lure Rob Gronkowski out of position. And he actually did this really, really well when he made a horizontal cut and he drew Adam Butler out of position and froze a bunch of people, and that got Rob Gronkowski a little bit out of position too, and it completely took away the angle. Uh, and moving on, like Travis talked about, they have some pretty astounding issues uh, in pass protection, especially on the interior. Uh, their interior linemen in something called pass blocking efficiency, all that is, it's a pro football focus stat. They take pressures, which is uh, hits and hurries, and sacks, and basically, it's like how many snaps 
can you go without one of those things happening? And they, they put it into a percentage that's kind of nice and easy to figure out. Uh, and sacks count a little bit worse than pressures because, you know, obviously. Uh, and in that stat, among all offensive interior linemen, so that's what, like 32 teams, three interior linemen a pop, plus a few backups, you're going to have like 120, 130. There's, they all rank from 111th to 119th. Uh, for context, Tom Compton is 95th, and Danny Isadora is 118th, right in that range. So it's as if the Miami Dolphins are working with three Danny Isadoras in terms of at least straight production and efficiency. Uh, so I looked into the tape, and I looked at some of the, the Dolphins' stats, and I can show you this in the—I uh, can put this in the show notes as well. And they have a horrible problem with dealing with stunts. It's really easy to lure them out of position— uh, almost similarly to how Kenyon Drake does it on the other side of the ball. Uh, but it's really easy for, you know, a, a defensive tackle to crash inside. The guard will follow, and then the nose tackle can loop around, or the other way around, uh, and and have a free shot at the quarterback. And, and the interior has struggled with that a ton all season. Um, so moving on, uh, the last thing I want to talk about with the Dolphins before I move on to some of your bold predictions is uh, the matchups. There are some really, really, really fun matchups that I'm really looking forward to as a fan. Uh, Xavier Howard is questionable. Uh, I believe he did not practice today, Wednesday, that I'm recording this, so we'll have to monitor that situation as it goes forward. But if he does play, and he is a very good contested catch uh, cornerback, like Travis talked about yesterday, um, I would love to see him go up against Stefan Diggs, who is also an amazing contested catch receiver. Uh, Sam Monson, PFF Sam, is one of the most senior analysts at Pro Football Focus, and he has frequently called Stephon Diggs the best contested catch receiver in the NFL. Uh, it would be amazing to watch those two go up for a contested ball, and you know Kirk is going to throw something into a tight window and give those two a chance to duke it out. As a fan, that would be really fun to watch. Obviously, I want Stephon Diggs to have an easier job, um, but it would be definitely something to key in on if Xavier Howard does end up going. Uh, and on the other side of the formation, or maybe on the inside of the formation, you have Minka Fitzpatrick, who is the Dolphins' rookie safety, who also comes into the slot a lot. We actually saw the Cardinals do something similar to this with uh, Buda Baker, who plays in the slot and also safety a bunch. It's kind of a hybrid position. But unlike Buda Baker, Minka Fitzpatrick has been an absolute stud in the slot. He's given up something like uh, 0.83 or something like that yards per cover snap, and all yards per cover snap is, it's exactly what it sounds. It's taking all the snaps that the player played in, in slot coverage in this case, and how many yards did you give up and divide it by that. It's actually a very stable statistic uh, because it essentially respects the fact that if you didn't get targeted, you were probably in good coverage. Uh, so all the snaps you played where they threw a different direction actually count in your favor in by, by yards per cover snap. And it, as it turns out, that actually does matter, and it actually does kind of represent how good a defensive back is. So Minka Fitzpatrick in the slot has been excellent, and we have a slot receiver that, I don't know, is pretty good. His name's Adam Thielen. That would be an awesome matchup to watch. It would be a really great test for the rookie, and it'd be a really great test for Thielen, who's kind of been shut down twice. We'll probably see the Dolphins do the same thing that the Patriots and Seahawks have done, which is bracket uh, Diggs and Thielen. Uh, but if they have confidence in their kind of star defensive backs, they might leave them on an island, and we might, as fans, get treated to a really, really, really fun matchup. So the last matchup that I want to talk about before we get into predictions and all that is Everson Griffin versus Laramie Tunsil. You might remember Laramie Tunsil from the draft a couple years ago. He was the guy that got caught with a weird video of him smoking weed 
and fell to 13th, but still got drafted by the Dolphins. So he has developed into the tackle that everybody thought he was because he was supposed to go first overall. He's been having a lights out season at left tackle and likely Everson Griffin will be the guy to go up to will, to go up against him. Uh, Daniil Hunter might also rotate around. It kind of depends on how Everson Griffin is performing and, and, you know, rotation and fatigue and all that kind of stuff. It's not quite as cut and dry. Uh, but that will be a really interesting matchup to see. It'll be a test for both parties, right? Because Everson Griffin, while he has not been having the season that we're used to him having, and that's understandable considering everything that's gone on in the last few months for him, uh, he's still a very good player. And while Laramie Tunsil has had a very good season thus far, we still have kind of a small sample on him. He's still kind of young. So it'll be a really interesting dynamic to see those two square off and go against each other. It should be really informative for both parties. So that is going to do it for just my general Miami preview. We're still going to talk about the Dolphins for the rest of this podcast, but we're going to go to a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk bold predictions. We're going to talk my predictions for the game. And we're going to start calling some shots. I can't wait for one of you guys and your bold predictions to be right. So I'm going to rattle off a bunch right after this break. And we're going to see if you can hit one. And we are back. So let's call some shots, shall we? Our first bold prediction from you guys. I asked you guys on Twitter for some really crazy stuff. So here's a few of my favorites. The first one comes from Max... Uh, Weber at M4X Weber, who says Prefer is next after the game. I assume you're talking about Prefer is fired next after the game and return TD and INT by Cheryl's. So that would include a whole bunch of fun ones. I love this prediction because of what it's like the scenario that it suggests. It, a, Cheryl's is playing corner, which means someone got hurt or someone was bad and that Cheryl's plays well enough to get an interception at corner, which would be awesome. We all love him. He's been with the organization for so long. He's a hometown guy. He's always, you know, the cockroach, the roster bubble guy. He's a fan favorite and that would be really cool to see him get a pick and get some playing time. But it also suggests that Mike Prefer gets fired in a after a game where the special teams gets a return touchdown. That would be such a baller move to do because it would also probably suggest like if that happened let's go into that scenario and see if that actually happens that probably means there's a bunch of missed field goals and it probably means there's a bunch of coverage mistakes so it would probably be correct to still get rid of the coach if you're going to do it for those things whether or not there was a return touchdown offsetting it right again we're here on locked on vikings we are process over results and that would be a process over results move assuming that's how everything went down now, I, I kind of also picked this one because I wanted to talk about Mike Prefer a little bit. We haven't talked special teams really at all on this show yet all week, which I think is kind of a crime considering that, you know, the Vikings are like defined by kicker woes for the last like two decades. Um, there has got to be something causing the kicking problems. I, I've always talked a lot about how kicking is randomness. I really wasn't a fan of the Vikings drafting a kicker at all. Uh, and they clearly ruined this kid and they put too much pressure on him or something and he totally fell apart. Now he's doing fine in Oakland. And now Dan Bailey, a guy who has a huge sample of kicking well, is now here in Minnesota struggling. And it, it feels like, I, I think of a, um, a Mina Kimes tweet where she said, you know, if you come to Minnesota, understand that you will be bad no matter how good you are. The jersey is more powerful than you. And I can't stop thinking about that. Like being in Minnesota as a kicker, is bad for you. That probably reflects poorly on management, doesn't it? Not to mention that the return units have done absolutely nothing all year. Kickoff, I kind of get it because the rules have made kickoffs kind of 
a, a weird formality that's kind of useless anyways, and any production on kickoffs is should be considered gravy. But the punt return units have done nothing. It's been a very conservative, fair catch, you know, go forward and, and hang on to the ball and only get five yards. And I feel like, especially with the way the offense is struggling, you need a little bit more risk-taking out of your special teams. So I, I think if Prefer were to get fired, you know, he's been with, with this team for long enough to be expected to know better. I would be okay with that. I mean, I'm, I'm never a huge fan of firing coaches just because I think continuity is important. But in terms of the special teams coach, I would be a fan. Now, we're like way too late in the season for it to make really any difference at all. But after the season, I could see it happening. The next one is from Paul Pinter uh, at PP26, number one. Uh, who says Brian O'Neill catches his first NFL TD at fourth and one with 35 seconds left in the fourth quarter, making it 44 seconds, 44, seven Vikings. So I love this. It is one of my favorite jokes when we uh, drafted Brian O'Neill was that we just got our tight end of the future because he was such an undersized tackle, but he actually did a little bit of that at Pitt. And I think it would be the coolest thing in the world for Kevin Stefanski to come in and call a weird trick play where your right tackle catches a pass. Oh, and by the way, he's faster than anyone thinks. I genuinely think it could work just because of the element of surprise. It could work one time and then never again. And I also love that he built up this big climactic situation and then went, yeah, it's 44-7. I honestly... I am a huge fan of Brian O'Neill right now. I did not like the pick at the time. You can actually go back and find the draft recap that we did on the Purple Journal podcast at Purple PTSD. I'm pretty sure it's still up. Uh, I was a huge, huge, huge detractor of the pick because I thought, oh, they picked a project to fill a need that needed to be filled immediately on offensive line. You know, oh, we're going to have to wait two years for this guy to be good. He might not be good at all. I feel like this is another TJ Clemming situation. I was super, super down on the pick. And I could not have been more wrong. He came out in the preseason and he played well. And he played well when he had to come in for relief of Rashad Hill. And he ended up taking that job. And honestly, he's been like the most consistent lineman. He's had a couple of games where he's gotten beaten up. But he has been the the guy that's been able to string together like the most positive games per opportunity. He, He definitely is ahead of schedule considering that he was supposed to be this raw athletic project. He's way ahead of where we expected him to be, and that's something that I think we can all be excited about, especially because we're always so sick of having a bad offensive line. Getting guys like O'Neal and having them outperform their expectations is the first step toward getting a good offensive line and a good offensive line that can be around for a while, not just like a bunch of rentals or or some kind of like flash in the pan, something that's sustainable. So the last bold prediction that I'm going to go over comes from SB at VikingKing888. Uh, I think this is Steven from Maple Grove who calls into some other shows around the community uh, who says, J-Ron Curse pick six. I'd be a huge fan of this. Uh, J-Ron Curse has come in to the nickel position, the slot cornerback position, and has weirdly played better than you would expect. So J-Ron Curse was drafted as a safety out of Clemson, and now he and Mackenzie Alexander are competing for snaps, his old college teammate at Clemson, by the way, competing for snaps at a position neither of them played in college, slot cornerback. Mackenzie Alexander was an outside guy. And at least in terms of efficiency and on a per-snap basis, Jaron Curse has outplayed Mackenzie Alexander, and it's not particularly close. And I want to explain why that's so weird. So slot corners are typically shorter and shiftier guys. They want a lower center of gravity, and they want more agility. So like if you were looking for a slot corner back in the draft, you would focus on something like the three-cone drill at the combine, where guys are really relying more on their ability to change direction quickly and their suddenness rather than their straight-line speed. Like 
If you're looking for an outside corner, you would look for a vertical jump and straight line speed and stuff. And the reason is because of the guys they go up against, right? Think of your typical slot receivers, you know, your Julian Edelman's or your Jarvis Landry was this in Miami for the longest time. They're the kind of guy that are going that are going to use a lot of the space. If you imagine on the football field where the slot is, you know, you've got your two outside corners way off by the sideline and the corners there can use the sideline to their advantage, right? They can kind of stay to the inside of the receiver so that the receiver has to go outside and now the cornerback has to slot the ball between the corner and the sideline. On the slot, you don't get that boundary. So if you give the wide receiver any sort of leverage, the quarterback can just lead them that way and now he's in front of you. So slot corners have to be a lot better at keeping up with those sudden moves and those those cuts and those digs and, and things that we're really used to seeing from like Diggs and Thielen. Slot corners have to be able to keep up with that, so they need a lot more agility, but because of the same factors, offenses tend to put guys that don't have as much straight line speed and have a lot more agility, and the guys that don't have straight line speed and have agility tend to be shorter. It's like a center of gravity thing and and a kind of a leg length thing a little bit too. Those shorter strides and those shorter steps can help you with your burst. So oftentimes you will get shorter slot corners. And we've seen Mike Zimmer talk about this a ton, right? He's like, I don't want an outside corner that's 5'10". I think that was one of the first things that he said in his first year that was like one of those crazy Mike Zimmer quotes. He likes his slot corners to be shorter and he likes his outside corners to be taller. And that's why it's so bizarre that we're getting good play out of a six foot four slot corner that's supposed to have like no agility at all. It's another really, really, really strong testament to Jerry Gray and to Mike Zimmer as coaches that J. Ron Curse, a 6'4", former safety, can be playing slot corner at a high level. So a pick six from him would make me really, really, really happy. So with that, that's going to wrap up our show for today. Thank you guys so much for listening. Again, you can find me on Twitter at LukeBronNFL. You can find the show on Twitter at LockedOnVikings. Check out the show notes for a whole bunch of stuff that I cited. I'll link it all. And skull. Hey, sports fans. My name is Ben Beacon. I'm the host of Locked On Wolves, the Minnesota Timberwolves podcast on the Locked On NBA Network. The Wolves might be in the middle of what's turned out to be a pretty miserable season, but there's still plenty to talk about. From the aftermath of the trade deadline to looking ahead at what moves Gerson Rosas and the front office might be planning for the summer to the possibility that all-star snub Carl Anthony Towns could go off on any given night, it's still going to be a fun spring. Tune into Locked On Wolves daily, Monday through Friday. I'm Ben Beacon with Locked On Wolves, and we'll catch you next time.